This episode is sponsored by OpenFin, winner of the 2020 Rising Star Award at the Banking Technology Awards. Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me today for this episode are Sharon Kamathi, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey! And Alexandra Boyle, OpenFin's Director and Head of Strategic Client Group in Europe. Hello! Welcome to the podcast. Uh, this episode is all about rising to the top, and we're going to be talking to Alexandra about her winning of the Banking Technology Awards Rising Star Award later, as well as what we can expect from OpenFin in the future. But up first is the news in numbers segment. We've gone out and picked up on the big news from this last week. Uh, Alexandra, as you're our guest, you can go first. What, what number in the news has caught your eye this week? Great. Thanks so much. Uh, the number that caught my eye is 90. And that is from the article stating that more than 90% of the UK's financial firms still rely on legacy technology, according to the FCA. And um, that figure is not very surprising to me, I don't think. Uh, I don't know if anyone would be surprised by that figure. Uh, when you think of how massive the technology footprints of these global banks are and how they've grown over time, uh, they're very large mountains to move. So I'm guessing that that 10% is comprised of maybe some of the newer banks, uh, the challenger banks that um, have the benefit of starting in the cloud rather than moving a mountain to a cloud. So um you know, the legacy migration space is really interesting to me. It's a space that I live in, and I do have to say that there's been major progress uh, in this area, and that progress has only accelerated over the last five years or so. Um, you know, 10 years ago, the thought of moving uh, data and infrastructure from on-prem to a cloud was a, a fantasy, and, and now there are major enterprise uh, partnerships with global banks and cloud providers taking place. So I think they are challenging the 90% uh, figure there. Um, you know, the article mentions that successful enterprises use agile develop, uh, development strategies and deployment strategies. And what that really means is they're using technology that's architected to support pushing out many, many, many production releases a day. So hundreds or thousands of little releases a day to production. And, um, and that's really, you know, how OpenFin partners with global banks. Uh, we're in the business of supporting these major legacy migrations and, and cloud initiatives. So our architecture enables our clients to have this speed of change and speed of delivery and push out those hundreds and thousands of releases to production a day. And so um, it's it's a unique, it's interesting to see these stats. I think cloud adoption is, is really important. Um, we kind of act as a front end to a cloud strategy. So where customers start to build with new technologies and uh, and kind of new data models and architectures. Um, you build those applications and run them securely on OpenFin. So, uh, so these this article just kind of piqued my interest. It's uh, it kind of shows you how much work there is to be done in the space, and um, but how things are changing and kind of the momentum that's picking up as well. Absolutely, I, I think that um, 
legacy tech is one of my my favorite topics to talk about as well um and i think that it th- there are some really crazy figures in there when you look at it 92% still using legacy tech 78% still relying on on premises infrastructure of the 17% who do use cloud 11 use public 5 use private and only 1% use hybrid and it sort of goes against that um that prevailing feeling you get when you go to industry events and conferences or you speak to technology people and everyone's like, yeah, we love the cloud. Cloud's great. Uh, we can't wait to use it. Uh, and it seems that that, that wait is a, is, a, is a long time. And there are other stats and they're saying that a change or, or a major tech change at a bank can take between uh, 12 months or more in most cases. Uh, that you know that it, that's then that's just for one major change, and then you always get that that uh, there's always a slide you see at presentations where people say you know banks make a change once a year, and Google and Amazon make a change, make hundreds of changes every hour, uh, and it sort of illustrates that. But it also shows, I think, that that there is a bottleneck in terms of corporate structure as well as technology, because there's a there's a note here from the FC about change advisory boards and about whether they're uh, operating properly in. Um, in approving changes that either aren't that aren't properly risk assessed or aren't properly uh, thought out, and then also that there's just a bit of a culture um, still needs a bit of a, a review when it comes to to switching out technology. So it seems that although there's a lot of guys in jeans and t-shirts at conferences talking about how uh, they can't wait to you know some banks who come out and say we are the biggest fintech, we've been a fintech since 1980 something, and it's like yeah okay. Um, but let's see. Uh, this is definitely some eye-opening, eye-opening stats on this, and there's, there was a lot to chew through. And our, our reporter Ruby did a great job of going through all of it. But yeah, Sharon, have you got you got any extra thoughts on this as well? Oh yeah. Um, well, it was a brilliant job done by Ruby for sure. Um, and I was also going to add that our resident columnist, uh, Darmesh Mystery, um, from CEO of, of Ask Homie, he made a, a really good article as well about essentially the co- the core wars. Um, and it's talking about not only the challenges that are coming up in this space, stuff like Thought Machine and 10 Times, um, but also the incumbents and the challenges that they face. Because as we mentioned, a full transformation could take five years. Um, and he also mentions that it might be likely more. Uh, plus these new core banking players as well have their own challenges, which is getting their first few clients, which is not quite easy. And, and also the the breadth and the re- reach is what he talks about as well in the area. So how far they can go um, and also what they can offer too. Plus the incumbents as well, once they do um, have a, an acquisition, which we're seeing quite a lot of, there ends up being a mishmash of this technology um, both new and old and all, all manner of things sort of patched up. And, and again, Ruby wrote about this too in her article about the Frankenstein approach um, that we've been seeing with some of these uh, banking providers as well. And I think that's such an interesting area where, you know, there could be innovation trying to come through, but unfortunately they're also meeting their own challenges with how to properly approach it and how to, you know, get new customers and show people how they're doing something different. But yeah, I guess it was an, an interesting one for sure. Yeah, no, I was just thinking, um, you know, you start to see that different uh, different areas of uh, banking technology get shown a little bit of love at different times. And so these transformations might be at different stages of the spectrum of their, you know, uh, of their maturity. Um uh, across the organization. So, you know, uh, I, I have to say, you know, some of the, our, uh, our customers, some of our strategic clients, uh, largest global banks, 
um, when we talk about global markets and the front office and uh, the uh, DevOps uh, <laughs> implementation and agile strategies that they've been able to put in place, um, you do see a lot of, uh, of you know, major acceleration on delivery of uh, new tech. But uh, the the flip side of that coin is other areas of the bank of banks may have been underinvested uh, on that journey or maybe starting the uh, the transformation journey and are just a bit behind when it comes to getting all of those processes in place to be able to kind of deliver uh, you know those those really uh, aggressive strategies. So um, I do think it's hard to provide you know kind of a full blanket view as these organizations are. Um, you know, they are comprised of so many divisions and there's just varying progress across these banks. But I do think um, I do think progress is being made. So it's it's great to see new innovators come into the space and just help uh, push that transformation forward. Excellent. And uh, uh, speaking of uh, new people coming into into spaces, that brings me into to my weekend numbers number, which is forty nine percent, which is the stake that IKEA has bought in its financial services partner, Icano Bank. Now, bear with me. There's a lot of very similar terms in this story. If we're being uh, if we're being technical, uh, it wasn't IKEA that bought the the stake. It was its 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 owning group, Inca Group. Uh, and again, said it bought forty nine percent. The other fifty one percent is owned by the confusingly similar sounding Icano Group, which is the owner of Icano Bank, which is uh, coincidentally operated by the sons of the IKEA founder. Invar Kamprad. Uh, so IKEA plans to offer consumer banking services in store and online. Uh, it's called the move itself a decisive step into financial services. Um, Icano Bank provides white label financial solutions and store cards to a handful of retail firms. Uh, some in the UK include brands like Oasis and, and New Look. Uh, and so through this type, IKEA is hoping to step further into providing uh, its store card, in-store interest-free credit, uh, and loans to shoppers in, I, th- I think they mentioned, uh, eight of its markets, so eight European countries. Um, so uh, uh, although on the surface of it, uh, this is, seems sort of a very much a share issuance and tie-up of a none-too-exciting you know, company A, which also owns company B and C, by staking company D, uh, it got me thinking about, about that wonderful uh, new buzzword that's coming out about embedded finance and how um, brands other than banks are dipping their toes into the financial services market. And also, it's just a great headline, really, isn't it? It conjures up images of people trying to assemble a bank branch using Allen keys and an instruction manual with, with four basic images on them and a guy looking confused. So it, it's definitely one... Um, an interesting one, and everyone loves the, the 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 IKEA brand that conjures up these images of the you know the blue and white stores and the massive warehouses. Can we imagine them filled with ATMs? Probably not. But um, yeah, Alexandra, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean that's that's funny imagining the ATMs. Um, you know, I think providing financing services and you know credit for for customers um, uh, purchasing products that feels like a natural progression, right? Um, I am curious about the other financial services that the bank will plan to provide. You know, they mentioned, uh, you know, the personal loans or fixed rate savings accounts. And it starts to make you think of, you know, is Ikea going to be that one-stop shop for, you know, home buyers? So you can, you know, pick up your mortgage in aisle five and curtains in aisle 27 or whatever it may be. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's exciting, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm not sure if I, I'm, I'm, 
I like to like the the idea of a future where someone can pick up a, a house and then outfit it on the way through. That's very, <laughs> it's very, it seems very dystopian to me. Yeah. But um, especially if it's an IKEA branded house, uh, <laughs> c- c- comes wrapped up in one of those massive tarpaulin bags that you get. Um, but uh, Sharon, what's, what's your take on this? Are you a big fan of IKEA, Sharon? Would you buy an IKEA house? <laughs> yeah, because then everything would be ready made. I, I wouldn't have to do it so much if I just get someone to fix everything. Because that's my issue with like IKEA. Like, why do I have to buy it and then fix it? I'm not good at fixing things. Like, do you know how many like drawers I've got from IKEA that just a bit wonky? There's a there's about three or four screws after I put it all together, and I'm like, where did they go? Like, what am I supposed to do with these? <laughs> um, I have the yeah. same problem, Sharon. <laughs> right? Like, honestly, why can't they just assemble it? in store and then lift it and then take it to my house. <laughs> that would be really helpful. But no, I did check out um, Econo Bank reviews um, and it looks like it's getting one star ratings all over Google and Trustpilot has it at a solid like 3.2 um, and people's complaints have, have mainly been about their customer service. So I was just thinking, you know, if they are, you know, finally embedding finance um in their workflow then they probably do need to look at customer service and how they can improve it because otherwise what is the value you know and and at the end of the day that's a a pretty big thing too if you're bringing out a, a new sort of system in place you need to make sure that uh all customers will be happy including the ones from from the bank so yeah that's what i was thinking is mainly the the value proposition of it but yeah, I guess now I can turn into my number. And before I, I break down my news and numbers, I just want to give a shout out to Maxine Waters, who was grilling at the Robin Hood CEO. Um, and that was very cool. So snap snaps for her, because for me, it was everything. Please do Google her absolutely destroying the uh, Robin Hood CEO. But yes, my number is 97 million. As the UK challenger Oak North faces 97 million in defaults from 10 borrowers. So the UK uh, bank has borne the brunt of these defaults amounting to 97 million. All but two of the 10 defaults since its inception in 2015 came down to property development loans gone bad. So the loan defaults stem from just 10 insolvent borrowers, including the two from late 2019. And the biggest default to date is still one of its first. So it was pre-coronavirus there was a default of 41 million worth of a loan to a luxury property developer called New Court Residential. And that collapsed at the end of 2019. Uh, so the total also includes 28 million in exposure to a London development called Twin 254 Kilburn. And that also fell into administration late last year. So neither New Court nor 254 Kilburn believe that they'll be able to pay back Oak North Bank. And the overall value of all 10 defaults is likely higher than the 97 million. So the Financial Times couldn't really calculate three of the 10 borrowers' liabilities from the company's house data. So they probably think that it might be a lot higher. Um, And what I was thinking about this was mainly um, a CAS business school study from April last year. And they essentially said that uh, loans tied to development projects are at risk with restrictions on movement impacting construction sites where social distancing is impossible to maintain. So about £22 billion of such loans are affected by delays and defaults on construction contracts 
with £14 billion of residential development loans also at risk of being partially written off. Um, that's what the CAS Business School report noted. And Oak North, which also licenses its proprietary credit underwriting platform to U.S. banks, offers debt finance loans to businesses in its home market of between 500000 to $50 million. Uh, but it's not the only one that's fallen short of these uh, bad loans because Barclays as well is facing a similar situation. So it reported a big drop in annual profits, having set aside billions of pounds for loans expected to turn sour due to the pandemic. And the bank reported a 30% fall in pre-tax profits of $3.1 billion from 2020, down from $4.3 billion in 2019. And it was forced to set aside $4.8 billion to cover loans unlikely to be paid back amid the economic fallout of the virus. And according to Bloomberg, um, in April last year, the number of Sour UK commercial property loans started rising in 2019 for the first time in eight years. And they estimate that it's set to skyrocket and the coronavirus outbreak will trigger as much as £10 billion of losses and write-offs on loans tied to UK stores and malls. Um, and that was according to a survey of lenders by Cass Business School. And that's after a slump in retail property, uh, which saw the value of bad loans spike more than a third last year. Um, so it's still relatively low is what they estimate. So it's mainly down to these property developers uh, and their bad loans turning sour. Um, and hopefully um, they'll be able to recover some of it from the uh, other defaulters. But uh, I can see, Alex, your hand is, is raring to go. What are your thoughts about this? Always, always raring to go. Um, oh yeah, first off, I want to echo your shout out to Maxine Waters. Great bit of viewing in general, the whole House Financial Services Committee thing with Robinhood and uh, GameStop. I recommend everyone go watch the the live stream. Put it on the put it on your second monitor in the background while you're working and just listen to uh, some of it. It's a lot. It was a lot better than the Facebook Congress hearings. That's all I'm going to say. Um, but on this uh, this uh, Oak North story, uh, yeah, I think you you covered it. Um, fantastically well there, Sharon, basically. I think there's a lot of focus in this story about, oh, it's Oak North, uh, the darling of um, of the lending lending sphere. Uh, you know, they have huge amounts of investment from SoftBank and Co. And um, Rishi Kosla was, was, has always said that, it, you know, the Oak North model is so good that they, they never predicted to have that many um, defaults. And now that they've started coming in, um, the headlines write themselves really in this case. And I think, uh, yeah, like you said, property developers are struggling across the board. It's a, it's a horrible year for lending in general, lots of defaults going on in certain markets and Oak North is probably, uh, facing the consequences of becoming a, a much bigger entity, essentially. Um, it's it, it not that I've drunk the Kool-Aid, but it seems to be going from you know from strength to strength. It's licensing its software out. Um, they, obviously, they've lost that ability to say we've never had a default, but um, they still have a. I think that their defaults still represent less than one percent of their of their lending, which is which is fine. Um, and I think it just sort of shows that it's that it's that teething problems that, that lots of fintechs are going to have when they, when they start matching up to the larger institutions. You start have larger institution problems. Um, more money, more problems, I guess, um, and and that's just the way of it. So I, I think it, it's an interesting story. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think necessarily it puts too much of a bad light on Oak North itself, but uh, it's uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how other lenders in the space cope as we we move forward this year.
Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is where we focus the discussion on a specific industry topic or sector. Uh, before Sharon asks her questions, however, I'm going to give Alexandra a chance to introduce herself a little bit more and talk a little bit more about her role and about OpenThin. Uh, so yeah, take it away, Alexandra. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Alex. I appreciate it. Um, so I am Alexandra Boyle. I head up OpenFin Strategic Client Group in Europe. We are uh, a firm that's backed by uh, strategic investment from Barclays, HSBC, Wells Fargo, Standard Charter, Bain Capital Ventures, NICA Partners, some some really uh, some really wonderful partners. Um, but OpenFin, for some background, uh, really acts as a foundational layer that the largest global banks, trading platforms, asset managers, data providers build applications that run on top of. So you can kind of think of it somewhat similar to what Android or iOS provide to your phone experience, right? You have many applications, and in OpenFin's case, you know, over 2,000 applications. Uh, but in the phone, you have many applications built by completely different companies uh, that can uh, have those applications easily get onto your phone. Those apps upgrade themselves, right? And most importantly, they know how to talk to each other over the phone. So, um, you know, if you're in a photos app, it's easy to share a photo with, you know, a social media platform or friends on a chatting app or whatever it may be. It's easy for those apps to talk across your phone to kind of streamline your user experience. You don't have to go into each app individually. So that's really uh, a kind of the analogy of where, you know, what OpenFin enables in financial services. Uh, so when it comes to streamlining that user experience, in some cases, it's streamlining a, a sales workflow or making trading desks more efficient. In other cases, it might be improving improving employee experience across, you know, intranets and benefits portals or um, or. Uh, you know, kind of various workflows, uh, but it's always focused on, you know, uh, improving the experience for the user, breaking down silos, and um, and really just making uh, data accessible and contextually relevant. So uh, you ask a question of, you know, what do I do? You know, I head up our strategic client group here in Europe. Our team really just helps grow adoption of new technologies, uh, of web technologies, of building these really enhanced applications uh, from single apps to enterprise-wide solutions. And so, um, you know, we're really lucky to partner with innovative players. They're tackling, you know, different problems and using OpenFin to do that. So um, a couple examples, you know, if you think of BNP Paribas, uh, you know, big focus on streamlining deployment of their client-facing apps. So uh, BMP Cortex Live, their single dealer platform in the FX space, wanting that to be an enhanced experience client side and, and streamlining delivery and using OpenFin to do so. If you think of Barclays, it's a great example of, you know, modernization and, and kind of bridging the gap between older legacy technologies, as we mentioned before, and uh, new web technology. So using OpenFin as that kind of bridge layer to bring together and have data uh, transfer across. Um, and then LiquidNet's another great example. We put a, a case study out, uh, I believe last week, but a great example of firms that uh, start to uh, have a number of acquisitions over time and uh, looking at those acquisitions, bringing together those assets 
in a standardized way and using OpenFin to, to do that and to deploy to clients. So, um, so, you know, as I mentioned, these our partners, our clients, uh, our job is to really um, help uh, build solutions with our clients and really just help accelerate their transformation and their uh, um, product strategy. And congratulations on winning the Banking Technologies Rising Fintech Star Award. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was um, incredibly honored to receive the award. I have to say, I, you know, I started my career in fintech at the New York Stock Exchange. Um, the commercial technology arm of the exchange is called NYSE Technologies. And I had a great education there. I was able to uh, really see how vast the landscape of fintech really is. And um and really, you know, realize how dynamic fintech is. It's always changing. It's always evolving. There are new players, and um, it's uh, it's been an incredible opportunity to uh, be a part of OpenFin and join so early. You know, I was really inspired by uh, Mazidar and Chuck Dewar, the two co-founders of OpenFin, when I first met them, and kind of jumped at the opportunity to to join the team. And it's been an incredible ride ever since. So. Um, I'm really, I'm really appreciative of uh, receiving of the ability to receive the award, and I'm pretty excited about uh, what's going to happen in the future. So, what are your plans for the year? Yeah, so my plans for the year, you know, I'm really excited about the team that we've been building uh, since since last year on the heels of uh, additional investment, um, growing a team, and, and really making sure that we have this foundation set. Um, uh, for uh, for collaboration. And so my colleague, Jessica Meiselman, and, um, who is OpenFin's general counsel, and I uh, organized an OpenFin women's group, one of these kind of employee resource groups, uh, I guess about a month ago. And I'm really excited about it. I think it's important as we're all still working remotely to have this sense of community and uh, to be able to share and collaborate. And, uh, you know, I fintech is an incredibly exciting space and it's an incredible opportunity for women. So the ability to kind of have uh, the the channels open for women to continue uh, to help drive things forward is important. So I'm really excited about establishing those channels and uh, eventually returning to being in person with our teams and our customers. Um, you know, OpenFin, one of the pillars of, uh, of, of OpenFin is a sense of community and the community that we build. Because we sit in this kind of utility space, we're able to bring together uh, major players in fintech, in fintech and outside of fintech. Um, my colleague Mitra Raknabadi, uh and, and our team have done an incredible job building this community called FinJS, F-I-N-J-S. I, um, I definitely recommend anyone checking it out. It's, uh, it, it's solely focused on, uh, on, you know, sharing innovative ideas and uh, innovative fintech players and, and bringing in perspective from outside of the market, from the likes of, you know, uh, Google or, or Facebook or, um, or anyone to provide um, insight into how people are using web technologies to tackle really complex, massive problems. So 
Um, I look forward to being back in person with our clients, with our team and uh, the FinJS community, because I think it is um, it's important and collaboration is key. Oh, absolutely. I'm right there with you. Um, Post lockdown life. Cannot wait. That should be a lot of fun for all of us. And what can we expect from OpenFin in 2021? Yeah, so great question. Um, as I mentioned, the, uh, the at the end of last year, that strategic investment, you know, gives us runway to invest in our team and to invest in our product. And so, um, you know, we're really focused on building uh, new products that help accelerate our clients' uh, experience, especially in this kind of future of work world that we're living in, where you might have a couple of days where you're in the office with four monitors and you go back home and you're on a laptop and you need technology to be able to support this kind of ever transitioning uh, paradigm that we're going to be living in. And so um, that's really you know where we're focused to make sure that that's uh, really smooth for our clients. And you know because of our footprint, we really are in this unique position to build products and utilities that the market need based on direct input from our clients. So, you know, having the the largest global banks and asset managers and vendors actually kind of help design the products that we're, uh, that we're releasing, there's kind of this mutualization that takes place. So it's pretty exciting to see that collaboration. And, um, as you can imagine, that only helps kind of drive adoption and innovation. So a good example is our recent release of uh, OpenFin notifications, which is, you know, kind of the central utility that, you know, uh, providers can push alerts into and make users more uh, engaged and um, have calls to action and just have a, a, a richer integration for uh, for user workflows. It's a great example of a product that's being designed and uh, supported by our customers. And um, I'm excited about the space that we sit in and what we're able to deliver this year. Here we are in part three for FinTech Jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword or trend that our guest has had enough of. Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already in there, whether it deserves an extended sentence or, in fact, if it needs to come out again. So, Alexandra, what term do you wish to see locked away in our jail? So the term I choose is bespoke. Um, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a great term when describing a suit. I think it just feels like a bit much when describing anything else, especially when it comes to software and fintech. Um, you know, I'm a huge proponent of customization and personalization. You know, we work with teams that are focused on, um, are focused on UX and providing specialized services to customers and, uh, a focus on the users. Very important. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, having hyper-personalization and flexibility for users to customize and experience is key but the word bespoke just seems to get under my skin a little. <laughs> That's an interesting one, I think. Um, bespoke, yeah. I think I think it's interesting. Here's here's a little uh, uh, the word fact. Bespoke, uh, it's completely changed its contemporary meaning. From it used to mean 
uh, speaking for someone. Uh, now, now because I think an article in a newspaper to do with tailoring had the word bespoke in it. Everyone thought that was a cool word, and so started adopting it. So it's got it's got a double meaning on this one. Um, yeah, I th- I think yeah, bespoke in in the days of uh, extremely large amounts of data analytics that need to be done by financial services firms. Can things really be bespoke, or is everything drilled down into demographic little boxes? You know, I, Alex Hamilton is a, uh, oh, I'm going to have to say, a middle class uh, male who lives in London uh, and buys far too many meal deals from Tesco's and Sainsbury's. Is that bespoke, or is that a, you know, uh, is there are there a group of like minded individuals like me who enjoy a bacon and chicken sandwich at lunch, and my banks can tailor it, tailor it to me for for that matter? Uh, I'm not sure, Sharon. What, what's your take on this? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I like the point of bespoke is usually meant for suits, but you know, it's a bit weird to use it for tech. Um, yeah, I would probably say that. Um, it can be locked up, but not for long. I would, I'd give this like two years. It seems like the meaning has already changed um, with the way we use it in a contemporary way. So maybe that might give it enough time, especially because, you know, we live in a very accelerated world where everything just seems to go by so so quickly and change within a matter of, you know, days. So who knows what bespoke might mean, you know, in, in two years. And maybe people might stop using it in the context of, of tech, because there's only so much you can do. Um, I, I don't think they can have like super tailored down to a T options of whatever it is a customer wants. There's always going to be, you know, a compromise somewhere um, and they can't exactly, you know, take it right out of your brain and, and put it there. You're only just working with whatever it is the provider can give you. So, yeah, I think uh, two years and then a reevaluation. Uh, does that sit well with you guys? That sounds good. I think you're just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to be less punitive. This <laughs> yeah, we're definitely swinging in the opposite direction this time around. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode of What the Fintech. Thanks to Sharon and Alexandra for joining me. But before we sign off, uh, we've got some time for people to plug socials or websites or projects. Uh, Alexandra, you're, you're our guest. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, absolutely. You know, anyone listening that is on a digital transformation journey that, um, you know, is building uh, visualization, has front ends, that's interested in learning more about, um, you know, how OpenFin can really help support those strategies, come see us at openfin.co. And I definitely recommend everyone checking out FinJS. I think it's an incredible community. It's open to everyone. And it's an exciting place for for info about innovative players in fintech. Awesome. Uh, Sharon, what about you? You can find me at Fintech Kits on Twitter. That's Fintech, just normal spelling, and kits, like football kits. Um, and also you can hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm loving the suggestions, guys. So who knows where our, our podcast will be going um, after you know, April time. So yeah, please do send a request on LinkedIn. You can find me just Sharon Kids Kimathy, my full name. And also check out our banking technology uh, magazine that came out and also the banking technology awards supplement, which is out. So please do check it out uh, if you want to hear more insights from award winners. Cool. And you can find me on Twitter at at adhamilton91. And on LinkedIn, just by uh, searching my name and looking for the guy with the beard. 
Uh, as for FinTech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at @fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching FinTech Futures and looking for our lovely logo with the two Fs. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your podcasting service of choice. Uh, we also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing us re- writing a review, recommending us to a friend, name dropping us in a Zoom meeting, whatever you prefer. Uh, thanks very much for any and all support you can give us. And we'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.